Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. All right, so I guess that since the whole theme of this weekend is um, the fight against imperialism, uh, we should actually pin down and have an idea of what imperialism is. So this term, um, it's sometimes thrown around as a, as a way to describe, well, like pretty much anything that's bad in the world, I find. Um, and as I was sitting down to write this, uh, this presentation, I was maybe just a little overconfident in my understanding and ability to explain what imperialism is. I was like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. It's, uh, I think of like super capitalism, um, which technically is in the realm of what imperialism could describe. Uh, but thankfully for me, and more so for all of you, um, there's this guy, Lenin. He wrote a very comprehensive analysis of the phenomenon of imperialism. Uh, it's called Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. I believe that we do have copies available on the table. Um, and this really clarifies the ambiguity that can sometimes surround this term and describe it on a very scientific and material basis. Now, to give the most brief definition of imperialism, Lenin writes that, quote, imperialism is the monopoly stage of capitalism. Such a definition would include what is most important, or on the one hand, finance capital is the bank capital of a very few big monopolist banks merged with the capital of the monopolist associations of industrialists. And on the other hand, uh, the division of the world is the transition from a colonial policy, which has extended without hindrance to the territories unseized by any capital power, to a colonial policy of monopolist possession of the territory of the world, which has been completely divided up. So don't tell him that I said this, but I don't know if Lenin was giving brief how he thought he was meaning to give brief. So I'll paraphrase here. Imperialism is really this immense concentration of power, influence, and capital, alongside the complete division of the world among a small number of imperialist nations. The ruling class of these nations essentially control the economic life for the rest of the world in their own benefit. So I hope that was a little clearer. We'll get more into it. And beyond this overall definition, Lenin goes on to describe five conditions of imperialism, uh, which I also think better illuminate what we're actually talking about. So the first is that the concentration of production and capital developed at such a high stage that it created monopolies, which play a de decisive role in economic life. Number two, the merging of bank capital with industrial capital and the creation on the basis, on this basis, finance capital. Number three is the export of capital, which has become extremely important as distinguished from the export of commodities. Number four, the formation of internationalist uh, capitalist monopolies which share the world amongst themselves. And finally, number five, the territorial division of the whole world amongst these great capitalist powers is completed. And while these five conditions each have more or less influence when it comes to defining imperialism, and it can be argued that some had very little influence in certain parts of the world, Lenin was very clear that of all of these five conditions, the first is the most fundamental to imperialism of monopolies, and it's why he refers to it as the monopoly stage of capitalism. So on this idea of monopolies, Lenin reviews the economic status of several countries leading up to 1916, which is when he wrote this analysis, and he lays out the concentration of production um, and the rapid development of industry. In other words, this formation of monopolies. In Germany, for example, in 1882, for every 1,000 enterprises or companies, three had 50 or more workers. 
There were six with 50 or more workers in 1895 and nine in 1905. So this trend of more companies employing more workers as time went on. These large companies in industrial sectors would include commerce, transport, and they made up about 1% of all companies in total, but employed almost 40% of the workforce. And even more so, they used around 75% of the entire energy consumption of the nation. So what this shows is a huge concentration of producing things, of production, in a numerically small number of companies. And it was not just that more companies had more employees, but the largest enterprises were using this massive amount of energy that was actually disproportionate to the number of workers that they had there. These large companies, they increased production faster uh, than they were increasing their employees, meaning that they were increasing efficiency of production as well, which is key here. In the US, it was a very similar picture. <coughs> they had uh, large enterprises made up about 1% of total companies, but accounted for half of all production. And of these 3,000 or so giant companies in the States at the time, they were part of about 250 different branches of industry. Um, and this is kind of like a misleading way to look at it if you don't look into it further. You would think that there would be about a dozen of these large companies in each one of these industries if you divided 3,000 by 250. However, imperialism tends towards the combination of production, where a single enterprise will span across multiple branches of industry. In bourgeois terms, this is called something, uh, this is called vertical integration, which does sound a lot fancier, in my opinion. Um, and for example, uh, we can look to Suncor. Um, so Suncor extracts the oil from the earth. They refine it at the refinery that they own uh, before selling it to us at their own gas station. So you can see multiple different branches of industry combined under Suncor's umbrella. Um, this kind of combination, it levels out different trade fluctuations and it helps to stabilize the company's profit levels. It reduces the need for trade between different corporations and it also allows for more technical innovation. Um, all of these things result in something called super profits and super profits is exactly what it sounds like. Um, they're profits above and beyond what would be typical in that industry or for that product. Um, companies can generally access or um, kind of create these super profits by using a technique or a machine that nobody else has access to. Uh, this might be because it's too new or too expensive. Um, or they can do this by reducing costs in other ways that smaller companies usually cannot, such as by scaling up production massively and increasing the overall efficiency. So I had a professor in university um, and she worked one summer, she worked in Hamilton on a production line and they were making some sort of like industrial product. It was Hamilton, it was probably steel, something steel. Um, and her entire job for the summer was screwing springs onto like a little post on like a, on an assembly line. She worked with several hundred other people who all had similarly mundane, simple, mind numbing, and most importantly, easily replaceable jobs. Having production on this larger scale allows the capitalists to uh, be as efficient as possible. And of course, much more efficient than having one highly skilled and highly trained and irreplaceable worker creating the product from start to finish. This combination also accelerates the concentration itself. Um, we can think of like a Walmart opening up in a small rural town that puts every other shop out of business um, before they employ 80% of the population of that town. These kinds of massive combined firms, they incinerate the smaller niche ones. 
The small businesses, they cannot compete because they're crushed between high prices for raw materials and then the low sale prices of manufactured goods. Through this process, the large companies are able to corner more and more of the market and eliminate more and more of their competition. And as this process continues, it becomes more difficult for new, uh, smaller companies to actually spring up to even get a hold in the market. As the concentration of production occurs in an industry, the large companies themselves often enter into alliances specifically to prevent smaller companies from trying to enter. These new uh, companies, they enter into a market that's dominated by larger ones. They're forced to compete with the prices set by the members of the monopoly. And very often they also have to purchase wholesale commodities from those large companies to then sell in their own stores. In 2018, it was revealed that Loblaws, um, along with Canada Bread and retailers, including Metro and Sobeys, they colluded to fix bread prices for 16 years. Boo, Loblaws. Um, they passed on an average of seven cents increases at the wholesale level and 10 cent increases at a consumer level. You know, these poor, downtrodden grocery store giants demanded that bread suppliers uh, manage the prices of bread between all of the retailers um, so that the consumers wouldn't negatively single out uh, the first retailer that raised their prices. Over these 16 years, bread prices rose 96%, while other items on the consumer price index in Canada only rose 45%. This essentially made them responsible for inflating the price of bread about $1.50 a loaf. The average consumer would have paid over $400 beyond what they reasonably should have uh, during the time of this scheme. And for all this, 16 years, they got to say like, oopsies, this is my bad. Here's a $25 gift card that you can spend half an hour of your day attempting to activate uh, before you go out to Loblaws and buy more items that we will also profit on. So <laughs> obviously I don't like Loblaws, it's not good. <laughs> but I think we do have to remind ourselves that we can't expect the Westons to have any real understanding of the question of bread. So anyway, as I, was, as I was saying before, we entered into Weston family slander hour. These very big combined enterprises, they're often able to invent and implement new techniques and technology that the small companies can't afford to invent or implement themselves. Um, and again, it results in them being pushed off the market. All this together forms Lenin's thesis, not the law of law stuff. He didn't write about that, I did. But all of this together, uh, forms Lenin's thesis that the competition of capitalism inevitably leads to the concentration of production, um, followed by monopolies, leaving consumers with no actual real choice at the end of the day. Um, competition demands lower prices and higher levels of technique, which can only be accomplished by these large, um, large companies, by combining industries, by uh, massive capital investment. Um, so we have companies like Telus, Rogers, Shaw, monopolizing our telecommunications industry. They innovate what they feel like innovating. They set prices where they want to set them and they either buy out or crush any competition trying to, to enter the market. And again, it leaves consumers with no real choice but to grin and bear it. Last I checked, Canada has some of the highest cell phone costs in the entire world. It's the same with oil and gas, Coca-Cola, chocolate bars, the list could go on and on. Competition is literally so efficient under imperialism that it negates itself as only a handful of companies are left standing at the end of the day. 
And these companies will generally form mutually beneficial alliances with one another to eliminate the competition that might exist between them. It's incredible. So the next element of imperialism that Lenin describes is the merging of bank capital with industrial capital. So uh, this leads to the creation of something called finance capital. So before I go further into this, uh, we should be clear about what just capital full stop is. Um, um, <coughs> I don't think we have any volumes of capital, but there is a big book series you could read if you'd like to learn more. Um, capital is the part of wealth that can be used to exploit human, human labor power in the creation of more wealth and with a view to private profit. Capital is made up of two components, dead labor. So these are things that exist um, that are the products of past labor, which can then be used to accumulate more value, i.e. capital, profits. And it's also a social relationship. So a factory can be considered capital because of the dead labor contained within the actual physical brick and mortar building. Someone had to build the building, build the machines, all of which a capitalist owns, as well as the relationship of the capitalist actually employing the workers. So as commodities are exchanged, things are created, factories are built, and profit is made, they can become part of capital. Uh, this becomes an almost independent maintenance and multiplication of commodities, and it further makes capital a social power. So the more the working class produces, the more production and appropriation concentrates, the greater the scope of the social power that capital has. Again, this is a very simplified explanation, but it's a social power that has an ability through wage labor to reproduce and multiply itself. The main function of banks is to serve as a middleman to making payments during which they transform inactive money, so in a bank account, into capital. So they can transform money that is not currently reproducing and multiplying into that active capital that can be invested and can eventually yield a profit. The concentration of banking progresses under capitalism in a very similar fashion to what I talked about with the monopolies, the concentration of production. They grow from these modest middlemen into very powerful monopolies that control the majority of capital of the small and large businesses across the world. And this means inc this includes control over the means of production of sources of raw materials around the globe. So as we see with competition between enterprises, between companies, the, the competition between different banks makes any kind of small operation obsolete by squeezing them out of the market. Not only will larger banks push smaller ones out, they will also annex them or absorb them into their own holdings. So sometimes this is through outright purchase, and sometimes they can acquire holdings and stock in those smaller banks. These annex firms are then dependent on the larger ones as much as the larger ones are on the smaller ones. All of this creates essentially a very large centralized operation wherein these banks exert incredible monopolistic power over the capitalist economy as a whole. In a small firm that has a few small capitalist accounts, they can carry out a purely transactional kind of auxiliary exchange. However, when this operation expands to engulf the entire economy, industrial and commercial operations are subordinated to them. They can determine the exact financial positions of the various capitalists, control them by restricting or enlarging their credits, and finally, entirely determine their income, deprive them of capital, or allow them to rapidly increase it. Just as the large industrial capital enterprises reach closed-door agreements and understandings, the banks follow closely, which only facilitates their far-reaching control. The banks then act as bookkeepers to the entirety of capitalism. 
And as I was, I was reading this and writing this, I was kind of like, damn, that sounds a lot like a very solid centralized monetary system that could be uh, controlled in a, in a rational way. And it could be, except for the fact that while the banks have the ability to command the means of production and produce for social need, they do not. Capitalism is very tricky. It demands to reproduce itself, to be productive, regardless of the cost. The centralized banks, the embryo of a, of a planned economy, they only serve capital, who is served through the private hands of the capitalists. As banks grow in size alongside various enterprises, the two become more and more dependent on one another, and this process is replicated generally across the entire economy. Businessmen with zero qualifications land a cushy spot on a board of directors of a major bank. Uh, they will hold stock in each other's banks and so on and so forth. While at the same time, these two, the enterprises and the banks, are also linking up with the state, with the government. And with all of this in mind, Lenin comes to the conclusion that the 20th century marks the turning point from the old capitalism to the new. From the domination of capital in general uh, to the domination of finance capital in particular, this merged uh, capital. A steadily increasing ratio of capital and industry is no longer actually belonging to those individual industrialists. They are allowed to use it by going through the banks, but they become less and less owners of the capital themselves. On the opposite side of this equation, the banks sink more and more capital into industry, and these bankers are turned more and more into industrial capitalists themselves. Um, Ford, the Ford Motor Company, it was a company that was made, owned originally by a guy named Henry Ford. I don't know if everyone knew that. Um, and as the Ford Company grew in influence in the industry, they became more and more owned uh, instead by the big banks that financed them. And hey, they did hold out long enough that eventually they were able to simply uh, directly be subsidized in 2009, 2009 by the government when uh, the financial crisis happened. A very entrepreneurial spirit, if I do say so myself. So this capital that is used to power industry, that's used by industrialists themselves, but provided by the bank is referred to as finance capital. Similarly, and alongside the development of monopoly within industry, the power and reach of this finance capital expands. As the banks become more and more connected with the industrialist leaders, they're able to access more and more capital to exert control over more and more of these industrialists. As I mentioned, it is through this interdependent relationship that the banks become the true controllers of industry. The banks additionally take advantage of the annexation and holdings that I spoke to in, in reference to the industry. Uh, they're able to hold stock in various smaller banks, exert immense control, but take none of the blame or responsibility for any actions actually taken by these smaller banks. The larger operations are given free reign with zero consequences. This transformation of capitalism um, on a generalized widespread scale results in the economic, of, economic life of society being nearly completely dictated by this financial oligarchy. No event exemplifies this merging of banks and corporations with the state better than the 2008 crisis. And almost all at once, the entire globe was exposed to their rotten parasitic nature and the stranglehold that these big banks have over the lives of us all. Trillions of dollars in bailouts were handed over to these same banks from the pockets of the poor through their taxes on a silver platter. And this fusion is, is at the heart of what imperialism is and the effect that it has on us today. 
So as the financial oligarchy commands more and more control of the economy, particularly in the US, Germany, France, Britain, um, which hold a lot of finance capital, the character of capitalism changes to terms of export. Uh, when free competition reigned, the primary export of capitalism was goods, was commodities to be sold. Uh, but the export of capital now has come to dominate. The nature of capitalism is very spastic. It's very uneven development around the globe. It leaves countries such as the United States to have centuries to accumulate capital and hoard this wealth. The uneven development is inherent to this system. Uh, it's the way that, uh, as is the way that capital is actually used. Instead of, again, raising the general conditions for workers around the world, uh, capital is exported to less developed, more backward countries. And while these countries will have experienced capitalism and some kind of industrial development, such as railways, for example, the profits are high owing to the cheap raw materials, the cheap labor in particular, and a general scarcity of national capital uh, in these poorer countries uh, to take advantage of the kind of favorable conditions that they might have. This foreign capital invested by wealthy industrialists and banks pays, um, sorry, <coughs> lost my spot. This foreign capital invested by the wealthy industrialists and banks earns them money and interests um, that they charge on loans and stocks in addition to non-monetary -benef non benefits of colonial intervention, uh, which might include access to the national, natural resources of that nation. This global export of capitalism has historically accelerated capitalism's development, particularly in these kinds of colonial nations. This export often slowed the development of the imperial nations, but as we know, homogenization and globalization is a necessary step in expanding capitalism. The global export of capital is not safe from the tendency of monopolies towards uh, using all their connections and shrouded dealings in place of free competition and an open market, which people always tell me capitalism is, is all about. Um, we have some middlemen. They end up carving themselves a piece of the spoils in all of this transaction. In many cases, both in Lenin's time and our own, a stipulation of these dealings between imperial and colonial nations would be that part of the loan would have to be spent at the issuer's market. So you'd have to buy the stuff from us. Um, another situation that can arise is called a debt trap diplomacy, whereas a condition of this kind of loan, in the event that a nation cannot repay its debt to the imperial nation, um, the loaning nation will gain some kind of political or economic control in the colonial nation. There are countless examples of these practices from around the world, but one that stood out to me was a, a case in Sri Lanka where they borrowed around $300 million from the Chinese government. Uh, state bank. It was at an interest rate of 6.3% and they were intending to build a shipping port. So not only that, but the building contract of this port did end up going to two Chinese engineering and construction companies. And when Sri Lanka was unable to make payments, um, when Sri Lanka was unable to make uh, the payments and service this debt, they were forced to then lease the port to China on a 99-year lease. So it's not just through these kinds of predatory loans, but through annexations, militias, and purchasing of uh, government officials. All these and more are ways that imperialist nations are able to export their capital and in turn their influence to every corner of the globe. The capital exporting nations have figuratively and literally divided the world amongst themselves through the initial lending of capital to these other nations. 
but also by seizing ports, industrial sectors, and even in some cases, entire nations. So I hope the journey of monopoly has felt like a, a line of dominoes that just keep getting bigger and bigger. Uh, Lenin lays out each foundational step in, in, in imperialism, the highest state of capitalism, uh, beginning with concentration and monopolization of industry all the way up to monopoly of finance capital and companies working in uh, cahoots with governments and each other. After all of this, we arrive at the, now the formation of international cartels and trusts, which mark an incomparable concentration of capital and production. And he refers to this as super monopoly. There's a lot of super words here. I think my super capitalism description isn't actually so far off. Um, but these super monopolies, he, he uses two electrical giants of America and Germany as an example. Uh, they come to agreements with one another where they divide the world up amongst themselves. And again, they eliminate competition between them on a global scale by coming to these agreements. The German branch of General Electric got a bunch of countries in Europe, and the American branch got Canada and the United States. For those countries that were not formally divided between them, they agreed to enter the market with daughter companies to crush any kind of national competition that might arise in those nations. Additionally, they agreed to exchange any kind of inventions or the results of experiments that they came to. These two global trusts would naturally be combined companies utilizing massive power and capital to completely control the end-to-end -end production and distribution of electrical products and services. And it's clear that any kind of free competition within the electrical sector is non-existent. It's, it's a fantasy. No electrical company in the world is untouched by this trust. And I will, I will stress that none of this is just an accident or because the, the capitalists are, are very mean. I think they are mean, but that's not why they do these things. Imperialism and these tendencies are a fundamental feature of capitalism's development because at a certain level of concentration, there is no other option than in the pursuit of profits. And this is the natural tendency of free market capitalism. Now, the final feature, um, that Lenin speaks of is the, the, the partitioning up of the globe and really the, the completion, the finality of it. This does not mean that, that repartitioning, resplitting it up is not possible, but it means that the capitalist countries have completed the seizure of all unoccupied territories on the earth. Uh, now the only option is redivision or transfer of ownership. The dominance of free trade competition, uh, free competition came to its limits in the 1860s and 70s, after which time there was a massive boom in colonial conquests, the struggle for territorial division of the world. The, com the completion of this stage came at the turn of the 20th century. And again, this doesn't mean there hasn't been redivision of the world since that time, only that imperialist countries now have only left been left to fight between themselves for control of what has already been divided. Finance capital became a very sharp force in all economic and international relations, resulting in the loss of political independence of the subjugated countries. It acquires colonies not only to increase control of current sources of raw materials and natural resources, but also to control potential raw resources and materials. Essentially, in search of the current and potential future sources of the things they can make commodities with, Colonial expansion continues, resulting in further domination of the colonial nations over the rest of the globe. These effects are compounded as time goes on. Competition increases amongst the colonial nations, and they are further compelled to gain more colonies. Millions of lives are lost, stolen by the imperialists in the name and influence of capital, oil, weapons. The Vietnam War, the Gulf War, Iraq, 
uh, war in Ukraine, among countless others that we'll be talking about this weekend as well. Um, all of these are, are acts of imperial aggression meant to redivide the world, slice it up into new pieces, different pieces amongst themselves, and sacrifice the lives of the working class and poor people at this altar of capitalism. So we often say that capitalism was at one time a progressive force that developed society, and that's true, but it is not true any longer. It is through the transformation of genuine free competition capitalism to imperialism that we can make this case, that we can say this. Capitalism has been in a distinct state of decay since this transition, but it's through this very decay that Lenin considers imperialism a transitional period of history. The contradictions of capitalism are no more clearly displayed than in the complete domination of global trusts and cartels, banks, industry, finance capital, and the corresponding misery of the working class. And what is the answer then? So I'll be honest, I try to stay off Twitter, just thought a me thing, it's a me choice. Um, but I did, I did do some very hard hitting journalism. Um, and a few weeks back, if I remember correctly, um, there was some debate going on um, on Twitter about how the working class of imperialist countries, so like the US, benefit from imperialism. And if you consider not being subjected to the same miserable conditions as workers in subjugated nations of, of privilege, then sure, but the bar is in the basement. I know we're literally in the basement, but it's further. It's not a privilege to be sent to fight on a war, in a war on behalf of your country's capitalists. It's not a privilege to have your taxes directly fund an ever-expanding military budget while millions live in poverty at home. It's not a privilege to have to fight against lower and lower wages as, as jobs are outsourced to colonial nations in the pursuit of profits. It's not a privilege to have the massive powers of your own government turned against you in movements such as BLM and Roe v. Wade, which we've seen in the States. And the problem with these kinds of ideas, that the workers of the imperialist nations directly benefit from imperialism, is that it divides up the workers, workers all around the world, and it pits them against each other. It implies that the workers in the US are willing participants in imperialism for their own benefit, and that they are not too crushed under its boot. There is no denying that there are tangential benefits to living in a wealthy nation, but they are not obtained consciously by the working class. It is not because the working class in imperialist nations have these secondary benefits that causes the imperialists to continue exploiting the rest of the world. They would be doing both regardless, actually. Um, it's very helpful to the capitalists to claim that because the workers in the US or Canada um, are having all of these lavish, untold benefits, that they must turn to the colonial nations in order to save money. Monopolies, oligarchy, the exploitation of the world in the name of domination and not freedom for the majority are why we consider imperialism uh, the parasitic and decaying form of capitalism, and it is why we must commit ourselves to fight it. Not simply by waving our fingers at elected officials and asking them very nicely for reforms or trying to personally avoid buying from sweatshops. Imperialism crushes workers at home and abroad. What is needed in the fight against imperialism across the world, which will release workers in colonial nations from their oppression and exploitation, as well as release workers in the imperialist nations from theirs, is a fight, is a united fight for socialism. Workers across the world must take up this fight in their own countries against their own national bourgeoisie. 
And we've seen in this last decade in particular, um, the, these kinds of fights beginning from Ecuador, Chile, uh, India, Belarus, Sudan, Iraq, Lebanon, Algeria, workers have entered into uh, revolutions, uprisings to fight against conditions they have been subject to for far too long. And in the imperialist nations, workers have not been immune to these feelings of immense unrest. We in Canada had wet sweat and railway blockades, climate strikes, and BLM. With capitalism in a crisis, however, we also see a collapse of the middle um, and a polarization to the left and the right alongside movements such as uh, the Freedom Convoy and the January 6th storming of the Capitol. Capitalism cannot um, contain or address its own contradictions or the worsening conditions that the majority of the world is experiencing. All of these kinds of movements, as chaotic and sometimes reactionary as they may seem on the surface, are symptoms of a dying system. It's gasping for breath, and it's a new world struggling to be born. Lenin said that there are decades where nothing happens, and then there are weeks where decades happen. And I gotta tell you, I think we've been having a lot of those weeks lately. I'm tired. It's our task to build a revolutionary organization that is capable of answering the, the demands of the working class, not with empty platitudes or flat out lies, um, but by taking power in our own countries and bolstering the efforts abroad. There is enough food and water and shelter and employment and clothing for everyone in the world, but it must be controlled by the working class for our own benefit, not for the benefit of wealthy bankers and bosses, um, <laughs> or for that matter, disgraceful governments that serve them. We must seize all that we have created and we have to put it to work for us. So I will leave it there. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at Marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com. <laughs>